For June 23rd, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 312. Tom Cruise deserves a win. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather. USA! 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 872! 872! That's right. For a... Every every it is our biannual. That, that's every two years, right? And and semiannual is is half a year. I think that's right. It is our biannual chanting of our uh, of our <laughs> telephonic uh, keypad, uh, you know, jingoistic slogan. Uh, because the World Cup is happening and it is unaccountably popular in the United States. Did anyone see this coming? Wait, this is this is not your question, but it but it it's curious. It, it makes. Uh, it makes me wonder, did anyone see this coming? I suppose the people who, who bought the rights to broadcast it and paid, you know, a, a nine or ten figure sum to uh, broadcast the World Cup for years and years to, into the future uh, saw this trend on, on the rise. But uh, I don't know. Did you guys see, see soccer coming? I mean, I think Univision was going to broadcast soccer regardless. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's on ESPN, right? It's not on any of the big networks. Uh, have, have we seen? Have I seen soccer coming? I mean, maybe. I guess maybe not as the degree that it is. What up? Like you know, the ratings are enormous. You know, I think it's just the Univision ratings are bigger than the Stanley Cup ratings put together, right? Like it's it's nuts. It's crazy. It's awesome. Uh, it's feverish. I mean, in, in New York we have Queens, so there's that. <laughs> you know, if you go to Queens, you understand like people love soccer. Yep, and you see it coming. Uh, well, it's I mean it's interesting. So uh, I mean, it, and we just all I guess well everyone except me saw uh, the match in which the United States managed to uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, a tie from the jaws. Of- Yes, it's a snatch a gentleman's draw from the jaws of decisiveness. <laughs> uh, snatch a feeling of defeat from the jaws of victory. How about that? Um, and uh, and so, in honor uh, of the World Cup, in honor of our um, quadrian- quadriennial visitor. Uh, from from around the globe, um, what thing, what phenomenon, what activity, what popular thing from outside the United States would you like to see become popular inside the United States? Uh, first in the alphabet, drink because it's not Pete Fenzel. It's uh, we're delighted to have him on the show anytime he can come. It's Matt Belinky. <laughs> Uh, hey guys! All right, so look, I'm gonna. Everyone's expecting me to say Eurovision here. For those for those few uh, overthinking podcast listeners who do not know about Eurovision, it is imagine American Idol if every state in the union, every state in the United States, I can't say union tonight, uh, had a, a separate uh, contest, televised singing contest, to select the best singer and the best song from that state, and then all the states got to face off in in, in a, a intercontinental. Um, they sing a contest. So Eurovision, every single country in Europe and a bunch of countries that aren't in Europe, but are sort of like affiliated with Europe, such as Russia and Israel, uh, get to participate in a, a singing contest. There's original pop songs. And of course, European pop songs are like pop songs from the 90s in the United States. Uh, and I have a great fondness for pop songs in the 90s in the United States, but I'm not, I'm not going with this, uh, because it's too obvious. So I'm going with the Autobahn. 
uh, Germany's uh, fabled highway, where at least at least the, the the reputation, the rumor in the United States. I don't know if this is the case, and I'm not going to look it up because I don't want to be disproved. Is that you can go as fast as you want, you can just drive as fast as you want, and, and nobody will stop you on the autobahn. Um, and I love this idea because I mean, partially because like I feel like the Americans sort of like, I guess, I don't know if it's correct to say that we invented the car, but like we have a, we have a hell of a car culture, you know, and, and the, the automobile and the sort of romance of the open road is a big part of the United States. And we also have a lot of very flat places, a lot of States where there's really nothing going on and would be wonderful for, for a highway where you could drive as fast as you want. But I also like the idea because I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of, um, Sort of uh, Darwinistic measures, such as like uh, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the recent movie uh, The Purge, and then also there there is a Purge sequel coming out. Uh, oh which yes, is the- all crime is legal. Definitely, yes. the whole podcast about it. Yes. Uh, you, I'm not walking my dog with a leash, but I'm walking my cat with two leashes. It's crazy. We <laughs> talked a lot about how to like re- rezone the other guy's house and how <laughs> yes, <you feel> proper <laughs> rewriting yeah. deeds to yeah, exactly. Because the pro- the problem with the purge that that we talked about is not criminal law; it's like contract law. That's yeah. uh, you know, if that were suspended, then I don't know. You you uh, like <laughs> yeah, the, civil, the, civil liability uh, that's incurred through all your clear waste yeah. anywhere you want. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Just for one day, though, you have to get it done real fast. But then you don't have to pay the truckers. But then they can also break your legs, and they don't have to deliver it. So it all grinds to a halt. But I also, I mean, I guess basically what I'm saying is like I don't like the idea that you're that any anywhere in Europe has more freedom than the United States. I feel like freedom is is sort of like our our stock and trade, or it's sort of it's sort of our thing. It's our gimmick, right? Freedom. And I'm, I'm, I'm I, when I say that, I'm saying it with a sort of registered trademark sign after it, meaning not like actual. freedom. Freedom, but sort of like the fetishization. Fetishization is that a word? I think it's yeah, a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the fetishization of freedom is our thing, and so that like if Europe has a road where you get to drive as fast as you want, then I think we should have a road where you get to drive as fast as you want in any direction you want in any vehicle. <laughs> It should just be. It should be. Uh, maybe the Bonneville flat cell flats are sort of like that. I've I've heard a rumor that you could just bring your car out there, but you may have to be filming a car commercial for that to apply. <laughs> you should be able to drive as fast as you want in any direction, uh, firing as many guns as you want outside of the yeah. car. Yeah, right? there should be like a special road, and like on that road, anything. It, it's basically uh, beyond Thunderdome. On yeah, that and it's also a Mobius strip, so you can keep going in one direction. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's bas- it, it, it should look as much as possible like Warrior Stadium from Mario Kart sixty four. Excellent. Uh, which is the greatest Mario Kart track of the nineties. The decade that all our Eurovision music sounds like. Yeah, exactly. The the I was about to say Eurovision uh, European Mario Kart tracks are like yeah. American Mario Kart tracks this, from the nineties. This podcast is like a Mobius strip already. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it's funny that that none of us seem to be able to pronounce anything on this uh, on this particular well, show. I had said say Greya while I was watching the World Cup, so I have an excuse. Oh, that's nice. I'm having a I'm having a lovely bourbon uh, right now. Uh, let's see if uh, let's see if he can pronounce words right. It's Peter Fenzel. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, Christ. Jesus. <laughs> this podcast is ruined. No, no, no. We're not. Stop. I'm not going back in the time loop. I'm not going back in the time loop. Uh, so as much as I wanted, as much as I wanted to espouse my fondness for diesel fuel and diesel fuel systems, it doesn't seem like either the time or the place. Um, so um, I'm going to go with uh, old man dancing. 
Uh, this is – I don't know if – I mean this is something that is popular in the United States. There's a lot of trends. If you would asked me this question five years ago, there's a lot of answers that I would have given you or 10 years ago and that have since crossed over, right? There's been a lot of permeation of the U.S. by international trends of things that have previously been thought of as very un-American, such as the U.S. artisanal cheese movement, which the FDA unsuccessfully attempted to destroy a couple of weeks ago with its wonderful uh, yeah, wooden shelf wooden regulation. cheese boards, yes. Yeah. Geez, I've been in the cheese caves at Formaggio Kitchen here in Cambridge, one of the, f- the first uh, place in North America to have uh, actual cheese caves. Julia Child visited it. They had to carry her down the stairs because she was so old, but she wanted to see it. It's glorious. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, yes, they, we now have artisanal cheeses in the United States. We now have good American-made wines. We now have city cars and fiats and, like, tiny little, like, buzzer things that we can drive around town that don't fit more than a couple of suitcases. Uh, but one thing that is the case is that if you go to, like, a, a salsa dance place, you might run into, like, uh, this old guy who's just sort of standing around and, you know, if one of your female friends or, or people accompanying you tends to approach him, he may bust out into this dance that, while incorporating very little physical mobility, uh, has just an utter element of masculine grace that's just amazing. I'm, I'm totally impressed by elderly Hispanic men dancing, elderly Latino men dancing. It's just the, it, the, the, the vibe of it, the comfort of it, uh, it's, just, it's, really, it's really styling. And while in American culture, you know, that isn't kind of uh, influenced as much by the culture where dancing by men is more thought of as more macho. Uh, well, we do have like wedding dancing and other sorts of circumstances, you know, like the hora and whatnot, where men will get into it. I would love to see a uh, a sort of, um, I guess, an artisanal cheese like movement for male dance. Uh, is, is what I would love to see come out come out of the uh, the globalization and the social mediaization and Twitterization of the world and all that stuff. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. What? Okay. I couldn't yeah. pro- I couldn't pronounce uh-huh correctly, I guess. <laughs> did I did I say something wrong? No, you didn't. No, no, no. I just got a sense that you didn't have anything else to say, so I was filling dead air. Would it be but, uh, uh, gracefully? Would, would it yeah, be quite gracefully? Stuck the landing too, just like the U.S. soccer team, totally flawless, <laughs> right to the end. <laughs> I, I guess it would be uh, like um, concomitant with a with a bunch of hats. And uh, with a, a uh, you know the ascendancy and popularity of certain kinds of hats, right? And because I think we've already seen the ascendancy and popularity of a variety of hats. I mean, fedora is now a disparaging term in the United States for like a specific kind of person. Right, like along with neckbeard, a rough synonym for neckbeard. Uh, and even though most of the people who say they're wearing fedoras are really just wearing trilbies, but uh, but yeah, we've seen a rise in popularity of artisanal hats. It's been uh, it's fedora our, yeah. is a is a uh, is a term that is uh, uh, pejorative. Oh yeah, I mean uh, we, for, you, for hipsters, right? Uh, no, for for in, for like internet um, nice guy misogynists. And, oh no, I've yeah, not heard of this. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, at least that that's uh maybe not maybe it's not used, you know, metonymically. Maybe it's not maybe you don't refer to the person as a fedora, but you know, put it, put away your fedora, right? Like uh tip your fedora, right? Uh milady as you tip your fedora, right? Is uh is commonly used in the areas of the internet that are full of just utter hatred 
uh, and they're used by everybody who hates everybody. Um, no, no, no. It's, Wait, it's we, a term. We've established already that I don't go to those places. So it's true. You know, it's because you protect yourself from negativity, which is not the worst idea in the world. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it just it refers to people who kind of adopt a, a sort of formal air of superiority, uh, and and there there is a certain you know idea of wearing a fedora associated with like this sort of withdrawn, uh, distant kind of like anti a, a social superiority that is actually hiding underneath a very thin veneer, uh, well, a very thick skin, a very thick muscular skin tissue combination of like social anxiety and social awkwardness. So that's interesting. But, you know, you know what would not fill my life with negativity is is a bunch of older men salsa dancing. Exactly. It would be positive. Right. It would make people happy. And you could put all think of the gifs. Just think of the gifs. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, the internet is a war between GIFs and fedoras, right? And the I, GIFs are happy and the fedoras are angry and sad. And you have to pick which side you're on. Nobody gets to be controlled. What, what kind of a shirt should I be visualizing at this point? Is it like sort of a metallic uh, sheen? Almost like, you know, like a, like a shiny shirt? Oh, that's something else that I wish that I wish would uh would become would is become shiny popular. metallic sort of futuristic uh, Battlestar Galactica. No, no, no. The Gaiabera, man. Yeah, the the Gaiabera. I was about to say, it's a Gaiabera shirt. Of it's totally a Gaiabera shirt, which is not like a guy with a shirt that makes him look really hairy, like a Gaiabera. <laughs> right. No, no, Gaiabera shirt, like a Cuban or Mexican or Puerto Rican wedding shirt. It's like a dress shirt that uh, is like loose and light, but has like kind of nice frontage. A bowling shirt is similar in uh, in concept right. to a Gaiabera. So, uh, I, I love the way it's like, you know, sort of like Latin American wedding shirt equals American bowling shirt. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and but you know these influences, and you know, it's, and that we're as soon as we start having bowling weddings, everything will come together. Yeah, no, in, which in, you know is just a couple years out in Latin America. The uh, you know the shirts are like the United States shirts from the nineties, <laughs> like worn by Smash Mouth, <laughs> except that they've been wearing them as, as like traditional formal wear for one hundred and fifty years. All right, I think Smash I've, Mouth only wore them for a glorious the eighteen nineties. Yeah, exactly. I think I've I've proven I can kill some time on the podcast. Take that, Pete. <laughs> oh, <So>. take it. <laughs> Banked, as they say on the weakest link. Banked. Uh let's Banked. uh let's move on to Mr. Mark Lee. Hey guys. I'm gonna go with unicameral legislatures. <laughs> Okay. Now, uh, those of you who listen to this podcast know that, uh, you know, I deal a lot with government in and out. I've worked in and out of government for many years. I think a lot about governance and institutions and things like that. And uh, Wikipedia tells me that approximately half of the world's sovereign states are presently unicameral, uh, ranging from the People's Republic of China to Vatican City. So you got big and small countries alike uh, use unicameral legislatures. And um, I think the United States government, federal government, has a lot of things wrong with it, a lot of inefficiencies, one of which is we have these two separate um, bodies of legislature, which for quick history lesson, for those who aren't aware, uh, one of them was created basically because of slavery. I mean, that's a very um, uh, abridged uh, version of the, the creation of the United States Senate. But yeah, slavery had a big part to do with that. So ah! let's Southern, southern states, okay. You're, no, okay. That, I totally disagree because the southern states were had the bigger population, even with the three fifths compromise. The Senate is to protect New England states like Rhode Island and and Massachusetts. Well, Massachusetts, but Rhode Island and then the future state Vermont, right? Because the southern states had bigger populations. 
Okay, you could. I might. I might cede that point to the honorary Mister Fenville <laughs> in, this, in the in the unicameral legislature of the. I would say it was, it was created because of slavery, but it was not created to. to, to okay, be a lot of parts of the United States government were created because of slavery, and that's yeah. kind of weird. And like you know, we should do away with a lot of these old things. Anyway, so I think we should have unicameral legislature. Uh, we can just reorganize the United States government. But here's the real kicker of my idea, right? Because the United States Capitol building is very large, and uh, there's two big, you know, uh, legislatorial chambers there for a lot of people to sit and you know. It's a big uh, auditorium type space. So you'd only need one of them. And what would you do with the other one? Well, let me tell you. I've got a great plan. You would use it you would to convert it into a movie theater. And you would sell tickets. And you would screen uh, um, the, the, the best sort of patriotic and, and American uh, spirit-themed movies possible, such as uh, Independence Day coming up real soon, guys. Um, make sure you, you've got that uh, queued up to watch on uh, on that holiday. Um, and you sell tickets and you raise revenue for the United States government. And um, you put that uh, chamber to better use. You want to do action right movies, or you want to do like Mr. Smith goes to Washington? Oh yeah, that yeah, everything's fair game like that. Yeah, as long as it expresses the core values of the United States, which include um, sacrificing our alcoholics uh, for the greater good to blow up alien spaceships. <laughs> All right, now see, now I'm curious how the seating situation would work because let, let's say uh, you're talking about the Senate, right? That the Senate's going to be a movie theater. So is it just first come first serve in terms of seating, or is it like you have to like be from that state? So like if you're from Rhode Island, you can only sit in one of the Rhode Island seats, and you have to sign up for a screening, you know, months ahead of time. I mean, I mean the, Senate, the Senate has a gallery, right? So I assume there's like a, there's like a bicameral system of uh, movie seating in the, in the Senate chamber, um, right? So that you can get a, a table. And I assume there's like food and drink service uh, at, the, at the desk down on the floor, but not up in the, not up in the gallery. Isn't the gallery also sideways to the uh, – uh, isn't the gallery also sideways to the um, – uh, uh, the proceedings, the goings on. Uh, I sorry, I don't have a uh, a detailed schematic map of the United States Senate. You know what? Uh, let me ask my, my friend. Let me ask my friend the internet. Don't they not let you take pictures inside of the Capitol for that reason, or is that just the White House where they don't want anyone to have a schematic map of the buildings? But wait, you can like Google White House floor plan, and there are yeah. they, they exist on the. I mean, maybe you get yourself added to a watch list of some kind. But yeah, you could just watch that episode of uh, House of Cards where uh, where he takes over and like ties up uh, Alcevedo from the from the shield and drags him back <laughs> in there. Guys, we're already on all sorts of watch lists. Remember, we titled one episode of this podcast: "Osama bin Laden loves Taylor Swift." Um, well, he yes, there, there, are mul- there are mul- there are multiple watch know. lists. There are multiple watch lists uh, that you get added to when you name a podcast uh, that when you name it Osama bin Laden loves Taylor Swift. Yes, he does. All right, even I, though he does. So I'm going to go for low hanging fruit here. I I uh, like the metric system uh, because I like to cook, and for cooking, uh, measurements are so much easier in the metric system. Uh, especially because water has a density of, of one gram per milliliter. And so it's very easy to relate volume and weight, not weight. Uh, what, what's, what do I mean? Mass, right? Um, it's, it's very easy to, uh, to relate those two things and, and uh, do conversions quickly uh, in recipes, for, you know, in your, your solid and your liquid measures. Um, that, that, that's so much more convenient, you know, do you know how many teaspoons in a tablespoon? Uh, as many as I feel like, damn it. This is America. <laughs> you don't. I, the answer the, I believe is... The answer is, is the chili is way too salty is what the answer <laughs> to that is. 
<laughs> right? Uh, how many, you know, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's tough, you know? It's tough when you're trying to do things in, in ounces. And, and don't even get me started uh, on uh, fluid ounces versus ounces of, of weight. So, um, you know, the metric system just, even if we just adopted it in the kitchen, in the kitchen alone, and still used, uh, still used gallons and uh, miles and miles per hour and whatnot in automobiles, um, that would be fine with me. But I would like the metric system uh, for the purpose of cooking. Well, Matt, can I ask you a question then about about the metric system and your implementation of it in the United States? I would be hurt if you didn't. Oh, thanks, man. Um, so one of the issues I have with the metric system is that the words are all so long. Uh, milliliter, centiliter, centimeter, millimeter. They're all long and they all kind of sound the same. Uh, is there a way – can you give me some measurements, some kitchen measurements that use the metric system that are – Shorter, more intuitive, easier to distinguish from each other. I don't want to be in the kitchen working over a boiling pot and ask, hey, how much, sh- how much of the oil should I put in? And hear like, well, illa eater. And I'll be like, what? Like, oh, illa eater. And I'll be like, uh, is that a deca- decaliter, millimeter? I don't know which it is. Do you have any ideas, any, any pitches for, for new branding? We need to spice up this metric system, make it easier to accept, uh, more accessible. Well, okay. I I have a more basic question, which is why are you, uh, why are you pouring oil into a boiling pot of water? (laughs) Like I have, the bur- I have the burns in my forearm to prove that I'm doing it. I don't know why I'm doing it. There, there are a couple of preliminary, there are a couple of uh, prolegomena to uh, this conversation that, that we need to have. Yeah, um, I don't know. With, with a measure like that, don't you, don't you just say like three times around the pan with oil or like two glugs of olive oil, right? Like that's, well, it's a, it's a, uh, I mean, well, there, that's even less, that's even less precise than the imperial system. <laughs> glug, we're going to measure everything in glugs. I mean, I'm on board because that's I mean, how I do things can, already. Can we give nicknames to these measurements? Yes. So rather than say like, you know, a, a, a centiliter uh, of this liquid, I can say like a guy of it named after famed American chef, Guy Fieri, um, <laughs> so, that God of cookery. But Guy let me, Fieri. I mean, well, while conceding, while conceding the, uh, y- the objection that you make, let me say that I think that it's actually a net gain in efficiency to switch to the, the metric system because you can do things in whole numbers, right? It's never like three fifths of an ounce of, of something, right? Or three quarters. Wait, is that three quarters or seven eighths? Or is that, did you say, you know what I mean? Like you're not having to do a lot of fractions as you have to do with, with imperial measurements, right? You can do things in whole numbers. 15 grams of something uh, is, oh, I can't convert in my head. That's about half an ounce of something, isn't it? Right. In in uh, mass and, and the, uh, um, uh, and that, so it seems like, uh, I don't know. It seems like that, that makes, um, a lot more sense to me to say 15 than to say half of something, right? Because what if you want a little more than half, right? Like 20 grams is, you know, uh, point, uh, what point six seven of something, right? And like, can, can you give me point six seven of an ounce? Can you give me two thirds of an ounce of a thing? Like that seems to me more prone for problems and, and misunderstandings. Well, you also have a, a large variety of different kinds of cups and spoons, right, that, that reinforce the imperial system. And the question is, if you moved to the metric system, would you pare down and simplify the number of measuring implements that you use? Because, it, you know, for example, if I have like one cup 
that I usually use to scoop my oatmeal, and I the number of people who show up changes. You know, and, and I'm dividing it by like thirds or fourths. I'm making multiply multiplication by thirds and fourths. Um, I'm not necessarily looking for like, you know, is it 0.33 versus 0.25? Eyeballing that in the cup is kind of hard. I would need a different cup, right? Like, are we, are we going to fully graduated measuring devices for, for all of these uh, different household implements? How do they do it in Europe when they're, when they're cooking? Do they have measuring cups of different like base metric measurements? And do they just do the same sort of like multiplication and division when we do of those? Or do they have like all use graduated cylinders and Bunsen burners with like Erlenmeyer flasks? Yeah, Although don't put an Erlenmeyer flask in a Bunsen burner, Learn not to do that on breaking. Bad. Does does a unicameral legislature somehow make the cooking and measuring process more efficient? Right. Yeah. You know. You know what I what I think would be useful cooking. You know the concept of a nautical mile. Actually, it's not a concept. It's a real thing. Right? <laughs> a nautical mile is like a little bit bigger than a normal mile, and it has something to do with like literally uh, the the uh, division of the world into to uh, longitude and latitude, and like you know minute minutes and you know what I mean. Like like yeah. but but I, I like the idea that like you could apply nautical to any measurement and make it a little bit bigger. <laughs> you know, so that like, you know, if, if you if you want to do like a half cup plus a little more, it's a nautical half cup. And then and then I like the idea that like maybe you go the other way and an aerial half cup would be a little bit less because planes are faster than boats and therefore you get a little bit less in there. I like the idea of a baker's dozen because it's assumed the baker's going to eat one. So you could do yes, that for baker's other are fat. Like, I'm going to get a baker's Nissan and the baker's just going to like right. take one of the extra wheels. And he's just going to, like, sell it at the chop shop. Right. So if you have, like, a nautical baker's dozen, that would be, like, 13.2. And if you have an aerial baker's dozen, that would be, like, 12.8. Right, right, right. So, yeah. (laughs) Is this helpful at all? Yeah, the nautical mile is a unit of distance that is approximately one minute of arc uh, measured in a meridian. By international agreement, it has been set at 1,800 52 meters exactly, or uh, 6,076 feet, right? So that's, uh, yeah, I guess that's a little more than a, than a, a mile. So a nautical unicameral legislature has like a broom closet where uh, an extra legislature sits. <laughs> How do they cook in yeah, France? The Puerto Rico gets to sit in the blue cro- <laughs> Goal, Portugal, goal! What, what, we weren't even watching. What happened? What happened? Oh, we almost won. What happened? No. <laughs> I'm losing it. Sorry, guys. I was really invested in that soccer game that was happening while we were talking about all this stuff. <laughs> uh, so that's, uh, that's, I guess, what the rest of the world um, has, uh, has over on us, on us Americans. Do you feel like the, the World Cup is the tip of the spear and that like, we are going to become more international and cosmopolitan? Or are we, are we going to stay as provincial as ever? I mean, my understanding of it is is less cultural and and more economic, right? Like, you know, the the our cultural hegemony has gone with our economic hegemony, and and as uh, other uh, cultures gain or other nations gain in in economic strength, they they will gain uh, in cultural strength in proportion to that, and so we'll, we're all going to be eating natto or something. Uh, Well, to to offer a nice little counter-argument, they weren't playing baseball in Brazil, right, back when America had more economic hegemony. They were playing soccer. They were playing football. And so it's not so much that that 
what we were exporting has become weaker. Like there was, you know, we had hegemony on ourselves, right? It was this, well, not we. I mean, we could say we because we're kind of privileged people, right? We're like elites and all that nonsense. Uh, and we can think about uh, a country that is ruled by people who are at least a little bit like us. Uh, and so they determine, you know, okay, well, everyone, oh, not, it's, not even, it's not even a top-down thing. What am I talking about? Bottom-up. Sports are bottom-up more than top-down. People watch baseball. People watch football, right? Like, but it's not like during the Cold War, you know, there's like a couple of places in the Western Hemisphere that adopted baseball, right? Like the Dominican Republic. Though Cuba did too, right? Which is not in the American sphere of influence anymore. So I mean, so did, I so did Japan, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Adopting baseball. So it's maybe, I mean, maybe baseball, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. But everyone adopted, you know, I don't know, Independence Day, right? Like... Everyone adopted July 4th as Independence Day? No, no, everyone adopted the film Independence Day starring Will Smith, right? No, I feel like that movie is less popular than I like to imagine it is, which makes me sad. I mention it more and more, and people don't seem to have the, like, unabashed love for it. I mean, I hear people people saying, like, wow, Independence Day is better than this movie that I saw that I think is bad. And I'm like, of course, because Independence Day is the best. But they they don't agree. Sometimes they don't. Maybe it's just that the... I don't know. They see it as implausible, which I don't understand. They start referring to Independence Day as though it were a benchmark movie, when it is clearly not a benchmark no, movie. No, it is not a benchmark yeah. movie. Because it is but, good. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying Do is we that... we have the discussion about like what, what movie is like in the dead center of all movies? In oh, terms yeah. We've of, had oh, this we, yeah, many, many times. More than many, once. many times. Yeah. yeah. I, I apologize, guys. <laughs> you don't do... Is there, wait, is there a consensus? Is there an open consensus? Is there like an official... Yes. Yeah, yeah. We, we've talked about this. It's the fifth element. I, that was my suggestion. <laughs> no, I know the fifth element's got to be in the upper fifty percent of movies existing. I'm like I'm like googling our article right now. I, I, I'm bringing up the think tank, which I think you might have written for as well. Uh, John, uh, so McNeil said it was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, what? All time favorites. I love Robin Hood. <laughs> That's my favorite Kevin Costner movie by far. I'll take that over Field of Dreams any day of the week. Stokes said it was Gangs of New York, uh, which I think is a lot of these are, are kind of movies that are, are awesome in one degree and terrible in another. Uh, Mark Lee said it was National Treasure, uh, okay, which I think is a solid choice. Decent contender I've heard so far. <laughs> uh, uh, I said it was Blade. With yes, <laughs> maybe on something there. The first one, I feel like they, the second one got better. The third one got way worse. Exactly, exactly. And then uh, uh, Parrish said the last Boy Scout with Damon Wayans and Bruce Willis. <laughs> and uh, and finally, uh, William Fit William Fitchner. Uh, what did he say? Um, oh, he just. This is something that was pasted in here. That is like kind of uh, oh the exact median man in Hollywood was William Fisher, who is also the uh, the guy from uh, Prison Break, and who is in um, Armageddon and whatnot. Um, I don't know what movie he said because we wrote a big fake thing for him to read, and it doesn't have it bolded, so I'm not going to say. I know I have. Oh right, that was when that was when we had fake celebrity guests on the think tanks, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I never, I don't think I contributed to that one, but I, on the podcast, I said that The Fifth Element was my benchmark movie, which is, you know, which is the, the median movie, right? Any, any movie better than this movie is good, and any movie worse than this movie is not good. Right. It's worth noting that none of those movies have any women in them, like not even one. 
don't know. I mean, there's one in in uh, in National Treasure. I there's think. one in, in the is, Fifth is not Element. The titular Fifth Element in Woman. Oh, last time I, know, I checked. I know. I meant the ones in the list that were in the article. Robin Prince of Thieves has one woman who's locked up for the whole movie. Uh, but uh, other than that, it's all dudes all the time. Are you kidding? Uh, the the Fifth Element has the perfect being who is a strong female character. I know, yeah, but the Fifth Element Robin wasn't on our list. Robin has Mrs. Littlejohn. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. There's this sort of a sassy, earthy, uh, practical yeah. English woman who's gonna who's not 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 gonna let the men go go to fight a, a suicide mission without grabbing a bow herself to to save her, her Christian Slater lookalike little whoever that little kid was Robert and Prince of Thieves. So uh, speaking of movies that had women in them, oh, <laughs> Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we we jokingly talked about it a little while ago, but uh, uh, a few of us actually saw it now and um, and wanted to uh, wanted to talk about it. Um, was uh, uh, you know the, the, was there a woman in in Edge of Tomorrow? There was the whole st- the whole culture kind of revolved around a woman. The term they used the term full metal, and then I don't want to use the last word because it might be a chili pepper word, but it rhymes with Lilo and Stitch. Uh, yeah, no, there was a war hero, great war hero, who was a woman, and, and she was the uh, the sort of loved and hated figure. She was a, a subject to a great deal of misogynistic hate from other soldiers, uh, which was never really addressed directly in the movie, just sort of as a fact of life. Um, I mean, yeah. it was, it was but, just... But also, I mean, also it should be said that she was also idolized by a number of soldiers, and like a big plot point towards the end of the movie comes around to the fact that like people will follow her into the mouth of hell. Yes, exactly. It's interesting because there's there's a huge distance between her and everybody else, and a lot of the movie the movie is about Tom Cruise closing that distance because uh, it's a it's sort of a romance kind of thing a little bit. Yeah, well, and and I, I think it's I don't know. I, are, are we cool to reveal uh, spoilers for Edge Tomorrow to some extent? All right, let's uh, let's say that that from now on, I guess there's a spoiler warning for uh, Edge of Tomorrow. You sound so disappointed. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't seen it yet, but but that's okay. Oh. I don't uh-huh. go to I don't go films to, to films to enjoy myself. Why not? What's that? Oh, because we oh, we a, talked about that too. We have a yeah, website we, to run. I know. <laughs> um, I know. Here's the thing. I know. So uh, uh-huh. I know. Uh-huh. So like a lot a lot of people have commented about the obvious connections between Edge of Tomorrow and video games. Uh, there's nothing explicitly about video games in the plot, but sort of almost almost metaphysically, it is very much about the the interesting situation that like uh, playing a single player video game you find yourself in, which is sort of half of uh, success comes from building up a series of skills about how to like you know execute the mechanics of the game, but the other half comes from sheer brutal memorization and knowing. And and when I watched the movie, I found myself thinking back with a sort of fondness and a nostalgia to how I. There are certain levels of certain video games from the 80s that I could probably draw from memory. I'm thinking, and I'm sure you'll all be able to rattle off your own, obviously the first level of Super Mario Brothers, the level in Battletoads where they're on the bikes, uh, the the compound from uh, GoldenEye, which is, I believe is the second level. Uh, like uh, pretty much all of Contra, pretty much every single second of Contra, I could probably draw every single obstacle in that first jungle level from from memory. And so, like, success comes from not only knowing what to do, but knowing exactly what is coming. So you're pretty much firing your gun in the right direction before the enemy shows up. Um, and that Edge of Tomorrow basically takes this to 
you know, and, and, and what would this be like if it happened in the real world? And so, like, success comes from not only building up your skills as a soldier and, like, learning how to fight, but knowing exactly what is going to happen before it happens. And, in fact, to, to sort of illustrate the point, there's there's one scene where Tom Cruise, almost like, you know, in exasperation of having to do the same thing for the thousandth time, uh, is in a fist fight with a, with a human. Um, and he, uh, as opposed to the aliens where he fights in the, in the, the critical battles, and he literally closes his eyes uh he closes his eyes because he doesn't need to see he knows that he's supposed to take one step he's supposed to duck he's supposed to rotate to the right and his enemy will will crash into the wall and that'll be it um and and i think the movie is is to a large extent about the gulf that happens here and uh, the reason i bring this up is because i think it is is critical that not only is Tom Cruise sort of stuck in this loop, but Emily Blunt, who is the the sort of female character that we were speaking of earlier, was in this loop before that she 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 had this power and she lost it, but that has put her on this other plane that she has had. She, she has this this sort of uh, supernatural fighting skill that she gained through like literally repeating the same sequence of events thousands of times until she has more experience in combat than any normal human being could because a normal human being would have been killed and that would have been it for them whereas that for her being killed is merely the first step in the learning process uh and it's it's really interesting because you know from a from a screenwriting point of view you would you would think that this conceit this conceit of being able to die and just try again is kind of interesting but would suck all the drama out of it right because drama is about stakes right it's about like what it, what is at stake and like how nervous are we going to be you know you think about like i don't know you think about like argo and it's like they're they're waiting in line at the airport and it's usually suspenseful and it's usually interesting because if they get caught the stakes are enormous um and it's like what does it matter if like if you die or if you trip you know, if if you if you and I think one of the one of the things that they they gain a lot of comic mileage from in the movie is that when Tom Cruise is even slightly injured, or when he's having sort of like a bad a bad speed run, you might say in video game terminology, uh, Emily Blunt will just pull out a gun and shoot him in the head. So that they can start again. And this is the equivalent. I mean, anybody who's trying to master a video game knows that, like, sometimes you don't wait until you die. You just hit the, you know, restart level button and you try again if you're not if you're not having a good run or you, you got a bad start. Um, and it's and, and then you, you would think, like, well, what where can the drama be? Like, if you can literally try again an infinity number of times, what's the point? And then they actually do manage to sidestep this in a very interesting way and make it make it exciting and make it meaningful. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I love it a lot and I'm a little bit disappointed that it's not doing better because I feel like clever movies, clever movies that are not sequels or reboots should be rewarded. Right? Yeah, that, yeah, 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 it was, re- it was really well executed. I mean, I saw this movie too and it's really, it's really interesting because it seems like it would be difficult to come up with ways to keep telling the story in a fresh and authentic manner, a way that both surprises and hues to all of the expectations that have already been set up, at least reasonably, you know, and also tells a good story internally that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and arcs and characters and relationships and all that good stuff. And the, just the way it all weaves together, I felt, was really elegantly done. I mean, for, to not get too, too deep into the spoilers, you know, a big part of it, of course, is between the relationship between Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt's character. And, you know, about whether they can both make it out alive or whether only one of them can make it out alive, you know, or like 
whether you know which one is it going to be and tom cruise kind of has a variety of different imperfect scenarios like he can make things perfect but only to a certain point and then past that point he has to either like drastically change approach or he needs to like concede that things aren't going to work out the way that he wants and uh most of the most of the course of the movie proceeds in the way that you might expect which is that he tends not to make compromises Uh, although he does try very much I, i thought that there is a one arc that I feel like is really worth describing, really worth uh, discussing, uh, because it, it shows the other side of the movie from the, the video game side, which is where Tom Cruise has trained. He, every morning he gets up and he goes over to, to Emily Blunt's locker place where she's training, and, and he teaches her everything she needs to know to basically survive the Normandy right. invasion, but with aliens. They, right. They, they draw a map, and he's like, here's what we're going to try today. We're going to take ten steps. We're going to pause and let these guys pass us by. Then we're going to shoot this guy to the right, and then we're going to walk to the left side. You know, and they literally go over everything. And every day he draws out a new plan. And and it's sort of like – and uh, I think the sequences of the movie that I found the most amusing, there's a bunch of these sort of sequences where they sort of show the passage of time, and they show him trying. It's it's not made exactly clear how many times he tried this, but it, it seems like hundreds. Yeah, he yeah. Literally, he, he goes through the same battle, and he dies hundreds of times, each time becoming more of like an, an impossibly good soldier, both because – I think I think it's it's the combination of these things. He he gets better at fighting, but he also learns where every single enemy is on that battlefield, and every you know he learns every little piece of turf. Yes, and he 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 goes through every possible line of attack. And once again, this this brings back fond memory. Literally, as I was watching it, I was thinking of times when I I needed to get through like a level of a video game, and you consider like what if you sort of hang back and let the enemy come to you? What if you rush forward? What if you go on the left? What if you go on the right? And you sort of try to like by by trial and error figure out like what. What's going to get you one step further? And then th- there's a lot of moments where Emily Blunt will go to him, you know, because she doesn't have the memories of trying it again and again. Well, she'll be like, you know, have we been here before? You know, like how many times have we done this? Yeah. And well, he'll, either, he'll either be like, yeah, like, like, like we always do this. It's the next part that's hard. Or they'll be like, actually, this is the furthest we've ever gotten. Right. And what I was going to talk about was that one of the big reveals – Right is when when she asks when she figures out because they get to a certain point they get through the whole Normandy invasion thing they've done it many many times they eventually get into the countryside and there's a part of the the level right where they find like a farmhouse that has a helicopter in the back and and it's pretty clear that this helicopter is going to be important to whatever it is they finally decide to accomplish but the issue is that there are aliens that are near that if you set off the helicopter the aliens will show up and only and Tom Cruise has tried it many many times but he can only have one of them survive. There's no way to get both of them on the helicopter and alive out of that farmhouse. And so there's a moment where he's like strategizing in the farmhouse with Emily Blunt and uh you know he doesn't he claims to not know where the keys to the helicopter are and it's re- and it's revealed in a really kind of cool way through the conversation because Tom Cruise is saying, like, let's just go to the garage and just, like, lay down and we'll take care of your wound. And there's this, like, sort of comfortable domestic air to it. And Emily Blunt has, like, the horrifying realization that every day Tom Cruise has been bringing her through this – training her, bringing her through this Normandy invasion – and has given up on defeating the aliens and is spending every afternoon just in like sort of domestic bliss with her, right? And which when like they've been living this sort of quiet life together over and over and over again, right? Within the scope of this of this thing. And it's clearly had a massive psychological effect on Tom Cruise. And eventually, like 
he's, she snaps him out of it, uh, and, 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 it, and it moves on. But it's like a really cool realization. It's like, oh, yeah, like, you don't even know that he stopped fighting the aliens. He gave up, and he's just been like, he can do whatever he wants. I mean, it's the Groundhog Day thing where he, like, learns how to play yeah. piano and stuff. But right. it's, it's, it's impossible not to talk about this movie without talking about Groundhog Day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very, very different movies, but a lot of the sort of mechanics, a lot of the things that sort of arise out of the scenario are the same, one of which is that there's this massive... Um, gulf between the 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 way that Tom Cruise feels about Emily Blunt and the way she feels about him. To her, they've just met today, no matter what day it is. And to him, that they've spent like the last however many years together. He's seen her die numerous times. She saved his life numerous times. And he feels, you know, right. And like every day he goes and meets her for the first time. And it becomes and I I should say by the way that I feel like this movie has an admirably um uh, it, it, it's restrained when it comes to these sort of the, the love story, and I use that in quotation marks because it's barely there. You know, there's certainly like a hint of attraction and a hint of that they care about each other in a deeper way than just merely a professional relationship. Oh yeah, but like they never, they're they're they never they never get naked. Is what, well, this, what I'm this, saying. This was my issue with Pacific Rim, right? Which is like the the story in in Edge of Tomorrow is a love story. Obviously, they love each other. Uh, like Tom Cruise loves her, and and the question is whether she's going to come to love him. But she can't. It's like fifty first dates, except it's a ten thousand of them, and they're constantly yeah. machine guns, right? Like it's like he's clearly falling in love with her, and the story is very much about their love relationship. Now, there's the question: Is it a sexual relationship? I mean, no, right? They never have sexual. They, she's she's filmed through the male gaze many many times. Like you're you're seeing, especially like the the first time that Tom Cruise sees her. She's doing yeah. yoga in like a sports bra, right? So like she's very sexualized in the movie and, and a, to a pretty great extent. Well, but okay. they, I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say very sexual. No, not very sexualized, sexual. but I don't know. I mean, like honestly, I, I feel like because of my my own privilege as a sort of as a sort of man, I, I hesitate to to say that to to sort of cleanse this movie of 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 misogyny and to, to declare her a, a unproblematic strong female oh, no. character. No, 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 but no, no, I do no, want to give you... this movie a big pot of, pot, pat on the back for When you say for you're being... a sort of man, what what sort of man are you? I I, I I mean I like to think I'm a, a sensitive man who is well informed about about feminism and feminist issues and tries to see these things through lenses other than my own. But I guess what I'm saying is like what I want to do is say that this movie this is a this is a, a well written female character the relationship is well written, yeah. but I hesitate to say it because I feel like I might be wrong or like maybe I don't really know what I'm talking about. Well, no, I think it is, but I think it. I mean, in the movie, they address how problem the problematic aspects of the relationship and the problematic facts of her femininity and her being an excellent soldier, right? Like that's addressed in the movie. Like it's part. It's it's not like it's not something that's just totally like done without thinking in a callous way, right? And I think in that sense, you kind of I'm willing to let it off the hook for that. But as I was saying, it's a romantic relationship. It's it, and it is even though they don't kiss or have sex in the movie, like that is the relationship that they have in the movie. It's about love and it's about this kind of coupling love and the the other and like the binary other and getting together and couples and and to just degree heteronormativity and and i hated i hated it when just because 
uh, uh, Rally Durham and random Asian chick with no character didn't kiss at the end of Pacific Rim, people didn't think that it was like a shallow, sexy love story, right? Like they're like, oh, they're friends. They're just friends who like look at each other naked through peepholes and who like straddle each other in like intimate moments. Oh, they're just friends. Just because they, yeah. how come everyone has to kiss in a movie, right? Why can't why can't a guy and a girl just be friends who you know like uh, you know who like get hooked up to brain machines to mate with each other cerebrally, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's just it's just like there is such a thing as a romantic story without actual physical contact of that sort. I was uh, I was actually a little puzzled by Pacific Rim too because everybody seemed to to hold up that character as such a great feminist, oh. as such a big step forward for for uh, like female characters in sort of like big blockbuster action movies. And I kind of saw her as not that strong a female character, not that well written a female character. That like she's very much she's she's either seen through the lens of like her sort of father figure or through her sort of like male love interest or I don't know I I I didn't I did, I wasn't particularly impressed with her as a character yeah. but she was I held think a lot of people a, on the internet yeah. were quite taken with her for about six and a half days and then they totally forgot about her and never talked about her ever well, I mean, again. but that that's the whole movie right the internet yeah. was in love with that movie for six and a half days yeah. and then, <laughs> it's no yeah. it's no the fifth element I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's actually very true in a lot of You know, respect. before we were before uh, we started recording, we were talking a little bit, uh, and Matt, you said something that's interesting to me about it, which was that you felt a little sorry for uh, for Tom Cruise, and and I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on that. Like, in, in, in he's a, a great big movie star; he's popular the world over. This film has made uh, nearly three hundred million dollars worldwide. Why uh, why why on earth do you feel sorry for Tom Cruise? I, you know what? I feel like Tom Cruise. I, I have always liked Tom Cruise. There's a big Tom Cruise backlash because sort of, uh, you know, outside of his movies, he has obviously the uh, the Scientology thing and the, the sort of problematic relationship with Katie Holmes. There, there are definitely – Tom Cruise seems like a little bit of maybe a creepy guy in person. But as an actor, I've always enjoyed him. and I've, I've enjoyed a lot of his movies and really liked them. And I feel like I feel – Here's I mean, here's the thing, and this is a broader question about like why we root for movies, why we like want them to do well. Sometimes it, it's for a very sort of selfish reason that like we want to see a sequel to that movie, and if the movie does well enough, like if I was a big Pacific Rim fan, I would want that to do well because I want to see Pacific Rim too, and it needs to hit a certain number to get there. Um, but then also like you know like I was I was referring to earlier that like one of the reasons I wanted this movie to do well is because we always complain about how the fact that all the movies now are remakes or reboots or based on a toy like you know or like battleship like you know some some screwball toy into like a board game that's like that's not even a real uh as i said toy in instead of tie-in but that's i'm i'm coining that i'm i'm making that an official thing that over at the gate owns now um but just like you know so here's edge of tomorrow and it is obviously it's not a completely original property it's based on a novel and a manga um but the fact is like here's something that is not a sequel it is not a reboot it is not based on something from the 80s and you know what like it's not going to make back its budget it's not doing that well maybe it'll make back its budget internationally but it's certainly not being seen as a big success and somebody is going to take the lesson from that that like we should have just like you know skipped right to the reboot of van helsing Right, like, why do we bother trying to make Edge of Tomorrow when we could have made like you know some, something when we could have done Top Gun two, or like you know we we could have just done like another Ice Age and like fast track that for this summer. Um, 
so that like I'm sort of disappointed in it this way because I always root for like original, even you know if it's not the best movie in the world. And Edge of Tomorrow is pretty damn good. I I tend to root for like original things to do well just to prove that there's still a point in making original movies. But to answer your direct question about Tom Cruise, I feel like Tom Cruise deserves a win. I feel like he made a bunch of good, um, you know, he was, I thought he was good in Rock of Ages, or at least he was out there trying something new in Rock of Ages. I really like Jack Reacher. I didn't see Oblivion. Maybe Oblivion wasn't that good. But hey, if Oblivion wasn't that good, we should all applaud the fact that he's back in rare form at the edge of tomorrow. Um, and I don't know. I feel like I, I, Tom Cruise deserves his success. Um you know, maybe maybe not yeah. not as much as some people in the world. Maybe well, maybe you could argue that he's already had a fair amount. I mean, I, w- I would say I also like Jack Reacher a lot. I thought that movie yeah, was I thought, great. I, I thought it was yeah. great. I thought he was great in it, especially yeah. considering he was nothing at all like the character he was supposed to be portraying. <laughs> I feel like his last big win was Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol back in 2011, right? That movie was pretty. Was actually I thought broadly thought of as really good, right? Um, although Wedge yeah. of Tomorrow also had like 90% of Rotten Tomatoes. People thought it was really good, too. Uh, and I guess it's been financially successful, just not a huge like conversation starter. It's not like dominating everybody's discussions of movies. Um, but yeah, no, I, th- I, could use a, I could use a Tom Cruise whim. I, love, I also love Tom Cruise as an actor. I loved him in Tropic Thunder when he did his little dance yeah. thing. He was the best part of that movie, right? <laughs> like he's shown a lot of range. I think that there was some discussion in some of the reviews I read about this, about Edge of Tomorrow, that it shows – it actually shows more of a, a, a newly developed, nuanced, more sort of flexible uh, sort of Tom Cruise acting style. It's, it's a movie where he doesn't lean on his intensity to get him through the emotionally difficult scenes. He's a little bit softer, just a little bit. He's a little bit softer. He's a little bit more pliable. Uh, and I think he's a little bit more vulnerable. And, and I think having vulnerability in a movie where you play like an invincible, brute-forcing, super-soldier kind of guy is like pretty impressive to be able to sustain it through that kind of movie. Yeah. Right? Like, um, and I, it just, I think that this might show maybe... Maybe some of his best work is ahead of him, I hope. Or maybe he's just going to keep grinding these movies out until it's over. Um, I mean, I don't know. But it's like, I, I, would, I, would, I would be on board with a Tom Cruise win. Yeah. And I don't mean well, Top Gun 2. I know. <laughs> I, I think I, I, I'm willing to predict with a fair amount of certainty, like, Tom Cruise will win an Oscar one day. He's, he's been nominated for three Oscars. People forget that. He's been nominated for three different Oscars. And I think that, like, he's going to have a very Matthew McConaughey career trajectory where, like, once he decides that he is too old to be like the, the leading man action hero, which I mean, you got to figure it's going to be pretty soon because he's 50 something, right? He's 52 now, uh, believe it or not. Um, that like he was going to take and, on and by the way, Matthew McConaughey, very scripts, 44. Yeah. yeah, really? What is up with Tom Cruise, man? Good, good for him. More power to him, but I, I I definitely think that like because he he's a good actor and I think he's he's certainly going to get good scripts when he when he wants to do those kinds of roles when he wants to do sort of more actory roles and he will and and people will have enough goodwill for him that they will they will give him that and like when he wins that Oscar it'll be because of Edge of Tomorrow that'll yeah, so, be what but, he was really winning it for. Well, let, let me jump in with um, one explanation why I think that um, some of us here are rooting for. Tom Cruise. And I think it's because um, of this idea that Tom Cruise being a, a leading example of sort of the last generation of true movie stars, which don't really exist in this day. And, and we are not the first to talk about this. Um, everybody's talked about the sort of the rise of the generic replaceable um, action movie star. Uh, Sam Worthington being the probably the leading example of this, but you can name it any number of other actors along those lines. Uh, but, uh, you know, people of our generation, you know, who... Uh, who grew up idolizing him in Top Gun, right? 
latched a lot of significance uh, and, 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 and importance to the success of Tom Cruise's career. Um, to the extent that, like, you know, if uh, if he's doing well, then somehow, like, that some of the va- things that we valued when we were young, those are still doing well and those are still surviving. Oh, that's my take on it. Do you guys share that? Oh, that, like, Tom Cruise is sort of holding on to his youth and his energy better than a lot of people who were uh, of that era. I mean, I guess there is something about, like, that energy that he represents and embodies, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, there is a light that never goes out, right? And it's in, it's, it's in, the, it's in, Maverick's, it's in Maverick's eyes, right? <laughs> so I think what you're saying, Mark, is that, like, anytime Tom Cruise makes a movie, there's, like, a touch of the expendables about it, right? That it's, like, a bit of a nostalgia play. The idea of Tom Cruise starring in a big-budget summer action movie yeah, yeah a little bit of that yeah that's not quite exactly where i was headed right. but yeah there, there's some truth to that right whereas like the, the expendables is is just a nostalgia play i, I don't i don't want to say that i mean it's right? a it's no. it's a it's well, a joke because kind of yeah it's a know. parody it's also a comedy right like uh i mean I, it's not I, like a football comedy expendables 2 was funny expendable yeah. i mean are you kidding with the with the chuck norris stuff and right, like, no, 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 right. The Expendables two really <laughs> went through the looking glass. We're gonna have a lot to say about the Expendables three with Harrison Ford and Mel Gibson and Antonio Banderas, and it coming out on my birthday. We may have to do an OTI uh, movie night, guys. Die we'll, in uh, you, my friend. Die <laughs> in you. <laughs> but yeah, but the, but Tom Cruise is like Bruce Willis in that he doesn't have to go on the Expendables because he's still relevant, and he like he's still and it, and by relevant, I don't just mean that he's commercially interesting. I mean that this I this I this external star identity that he's constructed. And that has been constructed with the help of others has found is found an, an, an angle, a vector, a way of hitching into what's going on in the popular consciousness. Tom Cruise is still on the cover of tabloids all the time, which is a great measure of whether people are actually important or not mm-hmm. in terms of the, the general national conversation, right? And of course, people will say, "Oh, that tabloids are are garbage and it's all nonsense and it's not important and we should all be talking about Julian Assange and all that stuff." It's like, no, this is the stuff that people makes people happy or sad in their lives. Like this, let's not trivialize what people see every day and what people care about and the faces that people think are their friends, even if they've never met them, <laughs> like Tom Cruise. You know, it's like, this is, he's a presence in a lot of people's lives. And, uh, you know, he's like Ben Affleck. He's, he's, he's really like, uh, he's a Ben Affleck play. He's like a long play. Uh, like, uh, Ben Affleck has his director Oscar, right? Maybe Tom Cruise is gonna, is gonna flip to the other side or he'll do something else. Maybe he'll do a TV show. How awesome would that be if Tom Cruise did like a Netflix original TV show that was just the best TV show ever and Tom Cruise was in it? Right? Like, yeah. I feel like that's a play that mm. He could he could get any yeah. team he wanted. Yeah, right. you know it's it's funny, Mark. Like like uh, when you said that the idea of like Tom Cruise sort of represents like the last of his breed, like he's the last of the Mohegans. Um, I thought about Arnold Schwarzenegger and his return to cinema, much much uh, valued return to cinema, not been very successful. Uh, the Last Stand was not a success. Escape Plan, his sort of uh, uh, fine uh, pair up with Sylvester Stallone, not a success. Sabotage, recently not a success. So it's pretty well established at this point that Arnold Schwarzenegger can't really single-handedly open a big action movie right, anymore. Right, right, that, right. that he's going to be so he's basically going to do another Terminator. He's going to do another Conan, and that's all he's going to do. And there's a fear, or I, I guess it's a fear for me. I don't know for anybody else that maybe that all that Tom Cruise is going to do now is make more Mission Impossible movies and that the days of him being able to like take a new property like Edge of Tomorrow and get people excited about it are iffy, if not over. Well, how how big is the commercial success of Edge of Tomorrow, Matt? Matt mentioned – Matt rather mentioned it made up $300 million? Globally. 
Globally. Oh, globally. Okay. So it's not that. Not that <laughs> I love that. I love that dripping disdain in your voice. Oh, globally. Globally. Like, that's like, that's like so called football. You know? <laughs> global football. You know? Uh, yeah. But I mean, it's you know, it's it's by the way, it's going to eclipse Van Helsing in terms of you know unadjusted gross uh, uh, income, right? Uh, probably within the next week or so. But, yeah, but I mean, here's the thing: it's a hundred and eighty million dollar budgeted movie, and so far domestically, it's grossed like seventy five million. Yeah, but it's that's not. not a, it's not, not a. These these big action movies are not a U.S. game anymore, right? Like they're they're yes. all. You know, one of the reasons that it's, you know, the the source material for this is is Japanese and like, you know, a lot of it is so kinetic and visual is is that it has to travel, right? It has to play overseas. Um, and this is true of all the, uh, you know, big tentpole uh, uh, multi hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, it just we I mean, we talked about um, uh, Pacific Rim earlier, right? And how about sort of like it it, it came and went in the consciousness, uh, at least in, in this domestic market. But uh, along the lines, exactly on the lines of what we're talking about here, the movie uh, was was really geared and, and made for foreign markets, right? For non U.S. markets, um, particularly Asia, and did quite well right, to the point where I think it did make enough money for a sequel. Um, so, but but I think what we had, uh, the the line of thought we had going into this uh, discussion was that uh, we still it's very much of a habit of ours to place uh, outsized importance on the U.S. domestic box office uh, and attach a lot of importance to that, and it, it, it it's it, it's not going away even even though intellectually we know that there's there's more to it than that. Yeah, I mean it's like guys, you know, go Portugal, go go Portugal! Oh my God, it just came out of nowhere. Oh, I thought they were gonna oh, just at the last. How could you give that away at midfield? Sorry, guys, I'm just really I was really focused on the soccer game. I mean, speaking of rooting for things, you know, the World Cup and people rooting rooting for their teams, whether it's whether it's USA or like some some other team that they've always rooted for, you know, or the team of their their uh, you know ethnic country of origin, right? Like. Um, uh, whatever it is, I, I think it, it it would be an interesting podcast topic, and it would have to be a different podcast than this one. Uh, but the the like the complicated series of things that happens, the complicated series of sort of philosophical claims you're making when you root for something, right? Like when you say, "I want this thing to do well at the expense of the other things that that can't do well because there's only so much pie." Um, but we'll we'll have to leave that one for another time, I think, because we've uh, we've run out the clock. Um, we've actually reached tomorrow. We stood at the edge of it, and we we mm-hmm. leapt over the international dateline, and now now we're in tomorrow, or yesterday, or one of the two. Oh my God, this podcast is ruined. No, it is not ruined. <laughs> not going in a time loop. No, refuse. <laughs> So uh, we have uh, we have a lot going on on overthinking it as usual. I know I know we uh, I know we always say that I always do, but there there is like there's been this sort of renaissance in in a lot of content being created for overthinking it, and it happens to be media content. Uh, and one of the things that one of the things that we learned from our survey uh, at New Year's is that we have a we have a text article audience and we have a, a uh, media audience, and then a, then a few. 
a, you know, a much smaller, um, a much smaller slice of the pie that, that does both. Uh, and for whatever, for whatever reason, a lot of, um, reasons having, I think to do with, with production, uh, like a lot of, uh, a lot of the exciting stuff going on is media stuff. So you got to subscribe to the various podcast feeds, um, Oh, I meant to say that. I've been meaning to say this for a while. If you download uh, this episode and don't subscribe uh, using iTunes or a different podcatcher uh, in in uh, you know the RSS feed or the iTunes link are available in the show notes for this episode. Uh, if you don't subscribe and you just download the episodes, would you subscribe? Getting those getting those automatic uh, automatic downloads recently, getting those stats up really really helps us. And there are. Uh, Two other uh, podcast feeds that you can subscribe to on the site. One is the TFT podcast, which is about popular music. Um, we actually haven't announced this anywhere, but we're gonna. I think we're gonna be talking about Jack White uh, and Lazaretto this um, this week uh, on that show, and. Uh, and then the other one is uh, the TV recaps feed, which has which has become a, a, a renaissance of groundbreaking genre audio entertainment with the uh, real time twenty four recaps. And and so, Pete, I I understand that in in I made a cameo in these recaps, but I was shot. But I understand that I'm uh, that I'm all right. That I've made it to the hospital and I'm being treated for my wounds. There's been no silent clock yet, Matt, so you're good so far. Okay. There will be a silent clock if someone dies on the show. That, that much, I can assure you. Hey, guys, how's that iced coffee brewing going? Cold brew coffee. It's cold brew coffee, not iced coffee, and it's an artisanal and painstaking process. <laughs> Little did I know when I shouted those words into a microphone that they would become the, the uh, soundbite that, that led off every episode since. Um, <laughs> So uh yeah that's exciting but but no one is tending the cold brew coffee right now because I am uh in the hospital or in hospital as you say in uh in England because uh that's where 24 is taking place. You're like the actor who like is playing Horatio and has to formulate the the way of thinking that it's like what's Ham what's the play Hamlet about and you have to think it's about this guy Horatio right who yeah who hangs out with his friend Hamlet. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So, it's like well, you see my character's in the hospital right. and that's <laughs> and that's and that's really what's what's going on. No, it's it's uh even if you don't watch 24 uh live another day, these are fun, entertaining performances from Pete and Ryan. Uh, and Matt, it is actually about Matt's character is the best part. of. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that's true. It reminds me of the bit in, uh, in Shakespeare in Love where um, the apothecary, who's the apothecary? Is it like Tom Wilkinson or something? Uh, the apothecary says, you see, he's explaining this, uh, he's explaining this, uh, but he's explaining Romeo and Juliet and he begins, you see, there is this apothecary. Uh, all right. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking a Podcast. Until then, uh, visit us on the web for podcasts, all sorts, for text articles, uh, and for the greatest community this side of Metafilter at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't deserve. Set the chain! <laughs> <laughs>
damn you, Cristiano Ronaldo. Damn you. <laughs> <laughs>